So we're currently in a five-part topical series looking at what Jesus did in his life and his death, otherwise known as the atonement. And the series is called Rescued. And so far we've looked at the fact that Jesus has rescued everyone who trusts in him from responsibility. That was the first week. Uh, Jesus took responsibility and suffered for our sin as believers. Uh, We've been rescued as Christians from rejection. Our sin separated us from God, but Jesus was separated in order to uh, adopt us into God's family. We've been adopted by God. And last last, uh, Sunday, um, Neil uh, led us as we looked at the fact that we were rescued from slavery. We were slaves to sin and Satan. And as believers now, we've been rescued. We've been redeemed by Christ's blood. What a beautiful way to start today, uh, thinking about the precious blood of Christ. And today we're going to look at the fact um, that we've been rescued from wrath or anger. And if you can turn uh, with me in your Bibles, or or you can just read with me, Isaiah 53, verse 4. I'll read that and then I'll pray. Surely he has borne our griefs, that is Jesus, and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you have the answer to every problem for every person in this building today. Lord, thank you that you have the solution. Thank you that you have the real solution. Thank you, Lord, that there is no truth outside of you. Thank you, Lord, that your word can be trusted. Thank you, Lord, that you care about each and every person in here today. And Lord, I pray that you would help us all, Lord, to to hear from you, Lord, that you would Open the eyes of our understanding. Lord, that you'd help me to communicate your word. What a privilege, Lord. Lord, that you would send that word forth, Lord, and it would accomplish that which it sets out to. Thank you so much, Lord, for your Holy Spirit who is here and who is present and who dwells in all of your people. Would you lead us? Would you encourage us? Would you... Remind us of the terrible wonder of the cross. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Rescued from wrath. Sounds like a movie, doesn't it? The title of a film. Uh, some of you, if you're old school, looking around, and probably none of you are this old school, to remember a, a film called The Grapes of Wrath. Maybe Richard. And who remembers that? Oh, praise God. Who, was, who starred in it? It was a Okay, and there was a film with Henry, all right, Henry Fonda starred in it. Praise God, there was one here today. The Lord knew that, didn't he? Uh, bringing it forward a bit, if there's any Trekkies in the house, you're probably too embarrassed to admit it, but maybe there are some here. I think Tim might be one. Um, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. And then most currently, there's The Wrath of the Titans. And the subtext, if you looked on, on the side of the billboards, says, feel the wrath. They obviously want you to feel the wrath as you go and watch that film. Now, the truth is we're comfortable feeling the wrath when it comes to films. We enjoy escaping into other worlds, don't we? We enjoy leaving reality at home. As you sit down in the cinema, that's what you're going to hear. They say, it says, leave reality at home. As you sit down with your ridiculously priced popcorn and prepare to watch a movie. (laughs) The sad thing is that in reality, 
that is in the real world. Too many of us, when it comes to talking about things that are really important, do actually leave reality at home. And then there are some who go a step further and actually leave reality alone altogether. They don't want to talk about things that are important. Have you noticed how easy it is to talk about rubbish or secondary things or things that don't really have any lasting consequence or significance? The only way is Essex. Some of you probably too ashamed to admit it, but we could spend time speaking about the only way is Essex or soaps. Swagger. He's got swagger. She's got swagger. I want swagger. We need swagger. The food we're going to eat, the restaurants we want to go and visit. Every day we spend time speaking about these things. The holiday that we're going on, the holiday we'd like to go on, the holiday we've been on, the holiday that we need. Or the people that drive us crazy, the people that frustrate us, the people that jar us, gossip. Or a great British tradition, which is speaking about the weather. Lots to talk about there. It's interesting because there's a big emphasis, particularly amongst the younger ones uh, among us, about being real, about real talk. You know, you're not real. This emphasis on being genuine, being what you say you are. And the impression you could get from listening to some people is that they're really concerned about reality. But when it comes down to it, there are things that we will avoid talking about at all costs, such things as death, a reality, the fact that we're all going to die. Sin, particularly if you're not a Christian, try speaking to somebody about sin. We mustn't judge. The society that we live in, you mustn't judge. We don't want to hear about sin. Hell, a place that the Bible teaches is a reality where all rebels are going to end up forever. And then there's the big one, Jesus, the rock of offense, the Bible calls him. You can mention God, you can speak to people about God. A lot of people will suffer you speaking about God, but don't mention Jesus. They've become offended. I'm sure you've all experienced this. Now, the sad thing is that many Christians shy away from talking about those things that are important. Many Christians shy away from speaking about Christ. And not only that, the wrath of God is one of the things that people don't want to talk about, people don't want to hear about. And yet, how many of you know that in church is the one place, if there are no others, where we must talk about the wrath of God. As Christians, we must talk about the wrath of God. Now, what is wrath? The dictionary def definition is extreme anger. Extreme anger. Notice that wrath does not mean quite upset or even a bit miffed or a bit peeved or kind of vexed. Extreme anger is what the Bible talks about with regards to God's wrath. Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Forgive me. God is a holy God and is extremely angry with everyone who rebels against his holy, perfect rule. God is a God of wrath. Now it's important to note that God is not wrath. God is love. That's who God is. But he responds in wrath to sin. Here are just a few, few important uh, points about the wrath of God. 
We're not going to be PC today at all, as you probably, probably noticed. So if you, hopefully you didn't come to be kind of petted, but th these things are important. You know, we need to speak about these difficult things. God hasn't called us to be politically correct. He's called us to be faithful to his word. So the wrath of God is biblical. Where do we get this idea that God is angry at sinners? Well, we get it from the Bible. The Bible teaches us that. There are some 600 references in the Old Testament to the wrath of God. In the Old Testament, we see some clear pictures, clear evidences of, of God's wrath. In Genesis 6, 5 to 7, it says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. You see a, a, a horrible picture here of God's wrath, a point where God says, you know what, I'm going to destroy mankind, I'm going to wipe them from the face of the earth. But also what you don't see here is, it says, but then Noah found favor in the eyes of God. So we also see God's mercy, but we clearly see the wrath of God. And it's no joke. Here we see that God is clearly not just a bit upset or vexed, but he's extremely angry. He is furious at mankind because of their wickedness, which is ultimately shown in their rebellion against him as their loving creator. Another place where we see the wrath of God is in Sodom and Gomorrah, where God destroys the cities because of their sin. And remember, he sends two angels, interestingly, once again, sends two angels in mercifully to rescue Lot, Abraham's nephew, before they destroy the city. Now, when you read the account in Genesis, you get a taste of just how bad things are, just how, how dark things have become amongst the people in that city, in that uh, it says that the all of the city and the men, young and old, every male surrounded Lot's house when they saw the two angels go into Lot's house. Two angels were there in the form of men and they wanted to have sex with them. That's how dark things were. Now when I say that God's wrath is biblical, I'm not just referring to the Old Testament but also in the New Testament. From Genesis through to Revelation, God is consistently angry at sin and with those who sin. Although this might be obvious for some of you, for many of you, it's important to make this point. Because there are many who say, you know what, I don't like the God of the Old Testament. The God of the Old Testament is angry and he's, he's a God of wrath and he's a, he's a God who's not really merciful. He, he kills people. He's not easy to get along with. But the God of the New Testament is a God of grace and mercy and love. I can take the God of the New Testament, but I, I don't like the God of the Old Testament. And the problem with this view is that it's completely untrue, isn't it? It's completely untrue because the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are one and the same. One God, same character. He has, he's unchanging throughout the ages. And also, we don't just see God's wrath in the Old Testament. We see his mercy, his consistent mercy. I've, I've given you two examples of it here. Sodom and Gomorrah, lots rescued. God's about to wipe out the whole earth. He, he, he chooses Noah. Eight people are saved. So along with God's wrath, we see God's mercy in, in the Old and the New Testament. 
So the God of the Old Testament and New Testament is exactly the same. He hates sin. He is extremely angry with sinners. Jesus speaks in the New Testament more about hell than anyone else. Now, there's no greater example of God's wrath than hell, in my opinion. In Matthew 12, uh, in Matthew 13, here we are. Praise God, I'll get used to this. Matthew 13, 41 to 42, talking about what will happen when he returns to earth. Jesus said, the son of man, it's another, another name for Jesus, another term for Jesus, will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You see the terrible consequences of sin. And we see God's wrath here being pictured in the New Testament as well as the Old. Not only is God's wrath biblical, but the wrath of God is terrifying. We saw a little glimpse of it there in in that verse. Now just think about the devastation that was caused by the flood. Every human being on the earth apart from eight drowned. Think about when you see tsunamis and see see natural disasters, how terrifying those things are. Sodom and Gomorrah, it says that sulfur and fire rained from heaven. There's not many things I, I, I recommend you go on YouTube to watch, but there's a guy on YouTube, seems pretty genuine to me, a guy called Ron Wyatt, he's a biblical um, archaeologist, and he believes that he's found the place where, um, I think it's in Masada, um, where, uh, which would have been Sodom and Gomorrah, you can see the outline of, you go in there, you see the video of it, an outline of the city, and all of the earth there is like talcum powder. And not only that, there's millions and millions of um, black, what looks like black holes in the, in the slabs of ash, different sizes, small, some, some slightly bigger. And then when you dig out the center of it, there's blocks of sulfur. And this sulfur is 98% pure, which means it's, it's, it's been heated to, um, I think it's between 4,000 and 5,000 degrees centigrade, like, like no other sulfur on the earth. If you go, if you go to a volcano, you, you, you'll, you'll find sulfur there. It's 40%. Think about how hot a volcano is. 98%. And so imagine being there as sulfur is raining down on you, disintegrating stone and metal and flesh and bone. Raining, it's everywhere. You can't get away from it. God's wrath is terrifying. Bible teaches that God's wrath will be experienced forever and ever and ever in the lake of fire. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 28, and do not fear those who can kill the soul, rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Now we know fear, when you're speaking to somebody about coming to Christ, the the fear of hell is, you don't want that to be the main motivator, but it is definitely, it's a factor. Jesus here says, fear the one who can cast you into hell. Now we have to fear God and the consequences of what will happen if we don't. Let's not neglect to warn others. Let's not leave out the wrath of God when we're sharing the gospel with others. Also, we see the wrath of God is deserved. That is, God is just in his judgment. Romans 1, 
18 to 20 says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they are without excuse. You think about it, there, there's, I think there's a sign that says um, God doesn't believe in atheists. Nobody, nobody has an excuse in saying that they don't believe in God. You're born into this world, you look around, you see God's amazing creation. It screams of a creator. And you're then to begin, your, your desire then should be, who is this, I wanna know who this God is who created the mountains and the, the moon and the stars. I need to make that my life's purpose, to find out who he is. Nobody is, has an excuse. We're, we're all without excuse. The guy that I used to love listening to, love, I used to like watching the wildlife programs, particularly on a Sunday morning, and David Attenborough, just David Attenborough's voice, I found it very kind of soothing, and the guy just knew, knew he knows so much about nature, he knows so much about you know, animals, and he's so very, very clever, very intelligent, very knowledgeable, but the brother's an, he's an atheist. How can you, you, you study God's creation so much and see all the intricacies and just how, how nature works and how the, 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 the millions of different varieties there are, different species of, of animals and insects, and that, you, you stop at that. You, then, you, know, you, you, you worship, really. You acknowledge the creation, but you, you leave out the creator. In all of his wisdom, he's foolish. If we do believe in God, then we too often want to believe that God is love. And God is love, as I said already. He is just that. But because he's love, that doesn't mean that he can overlook sin. He can't just brush it under the carpet. He'd be no better than a dodgy, or a bent copper. I used to call it bent copper, but nowadays it may have a wrong terminology. He'd be no better than a dodgy copper or a, or a judge who takes backhanders. Because he is love, he must judge sin. Now, we all know what it's like to see people get away with crimes, to, to go unpunished. Something inside of us says it's just, that's not right. We, we, we want justice. We want that to be dealt with. Think about Hitler, who really escaped by killing himself. Now, was that a, a fitting end for somebody who had been responsible for millions being tortured and killed? Think about the genocide in Rwanda, over a million people murdered, people hacked to death. Were all of them taken to task? Were all of them brought into court? Countless mur murders that we hear about every week, child abuse, rape, these sins that go are going on right now, and even in our hearts, these things that must be paid for, and we see sin outside, and we, 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 we want justice, don't we? We want it to be paid for. Thank God it will be. All accounts, all sin will be accounted for. Now let's not, make, not mistake God's extreme anger as the actions of a power-crazed monster who likes to throw his weight around. Now the reality is there are some of you in here who may have experienced abuse, physical abuse. You may have experienced the wrath of a thug or a bully. But God is not like that. He's not angry without good reason. And he doesn't just fly off the handle or lose it. The Bible teaches us that God is slow to wrath and that he's abounding in mercy. 
talked about God judging the earth and, and, and killing everybody apart from Noah. Actually, even once he'd pronounced judgment after years and years and years and years of warning people, even then there were 120 years for people to turn while Noah built the ark. Not one person turned. God is slow to wrath. His wrath is definite and his wrath is sure, but he's slow to wrath. All sin against God is a crime and is deserving of judgment. God's wrath stems from a perfection that cannot tolerate anything that isn't pure. God's wrath is directed at those to whom he has given life and who in turn deny him as their father. His wrath is a result of perfect judgment. Now, one of the reasons I think that, that people um, think that God's wrath is undeserved is because they've got too high view of themselves. They view themselves too highly and they have a far too low view of sin and of God. Sin is not really that serious. Well, let's go back to, go back to Genesis and have a look at how serious sin is. If we were there listening to God say, don't touch that tree, and they wouldn't touch it, we're going to, we might be sitting thinking, well, Lord, what's the big deal? But look at the consequences of it now. Sin and death and destruction and sickness and illness, all these things that we see, that we, that all suffering has come from that one act of disobedience. Sin is no joke. The wrath of God was poured out on Jesus. Isaiah 53.10a says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, was put, he, he has put him to grief. It was the Father's will to crush the Son. I want us to think for a moment about Jesus' uh, journey to the cross. Which began with, well really it began with him, think about his journey to the cross, him, him leaving the comforts of heaven and being born into this world that he created amongst his own creation and having to live resisting the temptation to sin. We have no idea what that, that's like. If you think about how difficult it is not to sin for a minute, let alone 33 years. Then to the point where he's arrested and he's, he was scourged. Jesus would have been stripped naked and tied to an upright post as the Roman soldiers repeatedly struck Jesus' back backside and legs with full force, the iron balls would cause deep contusions and the leather thongs and sheep bones would cut into the skin and subcutaneous tissues. Then as the flogging continued, the lacerations would tear into the underlying skeletal muscles and produce quivering ribbons of bleeding flesh. Pain and blood loss generally set the stage for circulatory shock. After 39 excruciating lashes, the, the Roman soldiers, amused that this weakened man, who had claimed to be a king, began to mock him by placing a robe on his shoulders. A crown of thorns was then pressed down into his skull, and a wooden staff and a scepter put in his right hand. Next, they spat on Jesus and struck him on the head with the wooden staff. Moreover, when the soldiers tore the robe from Jesus' back, they probably reopened the scourging wounds. 
Once Jesus had made the long journey through Jerusalem to Golgotha, just outside the city, being beaten and spat on and mocked by baying crowds, he was then stretched out onto a rugged wooden cross, which would have been scraping the raw flesh and exposed bones of his body. Jesus, already in excruciating agony, now had his wrist tied. Then two seven-inch nails slowly hammered through each wrist. And as the one foot was placed in front of the other, another nail was hammered through both of his feet. The cross would then be lifted into the air and dropped into its holding in the floor. As Jesus, the innocent son of God, probably naked, hung suspended by his arms for all to see. And then the religious leaders began to mock him. Save yourself. If you're the son of God, then come down off the cross. The worst was yet to come for Jesus. Because all he had ever experienced was the love of God, the Father, and the peace with him in perfect unity But this was about to change for the first time ever. The physical suffering was unbearable, but this pain of bearing the guilt of millions of sins. As the father poured out all of his furious wrath stored up since the beginning of the world on his precious son, for three hours, this is really unimaginable. We don't have a point of reference for this. We do know what it's like to feel the guilt of our own sin, don't we? I'm sure we've all experienced not just guilty feelings, mild guilty feelings, but but a, a real heaviness, a real turmoil inside because of our own guilt. Some people have even ended their lives because of that turmoil, unable to, to deal with the weight of things that they've done, the guilt that they have. And we can only imagine what that must be like for Jesus to bear the guilt of millions of sins, of all those who put their faith and trust in him. Think about just being in the presence of God. You look in the Old Testament, people will be trembling just being in his presence, let alone having to face his anger Jesus had never been separated from his father. He'd never known separation from him. Never known what it was to feel guilty. Never known what it was to sin. He was sinless. My prayer really is that the Lord would help us to really begin to lay hold of as much as we can just how much Jesus has done in taking God's wrath. Because I know I don't appreciate in the way way that I should. I need God's help to help me. Romans 3.25 says, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, speaking of Jesus, to, to be received by faith, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins and I was just thinking today about the fact that you know we wake up the sun's shining we, we live in a world where it doesn't really look like God's angry it doesn't really look like God's gonna 
judge. It looks like you know, the, world, the world is going on. Yes, things are getting worse and worse and worse, and there's more evil. Oh, scripture. Sorry, bro. Thank you. Amen. Things are getting worse, but we could, we could be fooled into thinking that God's not angry. He's not really going to deal with it. He's not really concerned. And we see here in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins only because he knew that Christ was coming. Christ was coming. He didn't brush them under the carpet or write them off. But Christ was coming who would be that propitiation. Notice the big word, propitiation. It means to make favorable, or as one scholar puts it, a sacrifice that bears God's wrath to the end and in so doing, changes God's wrath towards us into favor. This is a great word, propitiation. We were deserving of God's wrath and God's judgment, the full force of it. But Jesus took that for all who put their faith and their trust in him. The only way that sin could be paid for was through the shedding of blood. And not just any blood, but it had to be innocent. You think back to the Old Testament sacrifices, a picture of Christ, the sacrifice, the, the lamb who would come. So, uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus was sinless. He is God incarnate. That is, he is God in the flesh. Fully God, and at the same time, fully man. He was tempted in every way, but he didn't sin. So his blood satisfied the wrath of God. And now that means that everyone who repents, everyone who turns around, who turns away from their sin and puts their faith and their trust in him, God's wrath now has been poured out on Christ. His wrath no longer resides on you. You can be saved from God's wrath. That is great news. That is wonderful news. You can be saved from the wrath of God. The terrifying wrath, you can be saved from it. If you're a Christian, then God is no longer angry with you because all of his anger against you has been poured out on Christ. Jesus has taken a full weight that the cup of wrath has been emptied on Christ. Seems too good to be true, but it is true. This is extravagant love. So far from, as earlier as we looked at, yes, God is a God of wrath, but look at his love and mercy. He is fully within his rights to wipe all of us out and to show no mercy to any of us because we all rebel against God, we all sin against God, we all go our own way. Well, this is extravagant love. Romans 5, 8 to 9 says that God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we've now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. I pray, I pray that the Lord would really help, help this to, 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 to permeate our hearts if you've put your trust and your faith in Christ, there is no more wrath for you, no more anger for you. God is not angry with you. You are fully accepted. His, his wrath has been appeased. 
The question is for you is are you living as someone who believes and understands that Jesus has taken the wrath of God for you? Is that a reality in your life? We've seen how high the cost is that Jesus gave his life, he shed his blood, apart from all the suffering that took place before he got to the cross. The danger is that we can play at Christianity, we can play games. What's your relationship with sin like? Do you hate sin? We've heard this morning that God hates sin. The very God that we profess to believe in and trust in and to serve, the one who is our Lord and our master, he hates sin. Is that our attitude towards sin? Do we hate sin? Do we live like we hate sin? Are we we seeking to crucify the flesh daily? Or do you flirt with sin? Do we flirt with sin? If you're like me, then you're going to need to repent of your casual attitude to your sin and of your lack of appreciation for the high cost that God has paid to save you from his wrath. The question is, does Jesus, if you're a Christian, does Jesus hold the highest place in your heart? Is he number one? Because given what we've looked at, given what the Bible teaches that he's done for us, surely he should be number one in our lives. And I say that to to me as well as you. He should have first place in our lives. We should be living to serve him. It's no longer Mark, Richard, Rebecca who lives, but Christ who lives in us. Now, some of you need to lay hold of the fact that all of God's wrath towards you was poured out on Jesus on the cross and that you've been cleansed from sin. You need to be asked to accept that today, that God is angry with you no more because you're in Christ. Now, every sin that you and I have ever committed must be paid for. Every lie that you've told, every evil thought that you've had must be paid for, either by you, whereby you will be thrown into the lake of fire. That is a, that's, a, that's a terrifying thought, that there may be some in here today who will end up in the lake of fire, not because God has not warned you, Revelation 20:15 says, "And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire." Are you going to try and pay for your own sin? Or are you going to trust Jesus to take God's wrath for you and receive eternal life? If there are any of you who have not repented and turned to Jesus, then I must warn you 
The Bible teaches very clearly that if you die in your sin without Christ as your savior, you will spend eternity in hell. I beg you to throw yourself at the mercy of God, which is shown in God's extravagant love in pouring out all of his anger on his son. Isaiah 53, 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much for your word. But Lord, I thank you for the cross. Thank you for Jesus, Lord. Thank you that he's taken the wrath that I deserved, your anger that was righteous and just. He took that for me, Lord, and for all who have put their faith and their trust in you. Lord, I, I, I beg you, Lord, I plead with you that you would Help those uh, hearing my voice, Lord, sitting here right now, to repent, Lord, to turn to you, to trust in Jesus, to stop running from you, Lord, to stop living for themselves. I beg of you, Lord. Thank you so much for Jesus. He is a wonderful Savior. He is a glorious God. He is the King of kings. There is none like him. We glorify you this morning, Jesus. We thank you so much for taking the wrath for us. Thank you, Lord, for taking the anger of the Father. Thank you, thank you that you did that willingly and joyfully. You despise the shame for the joy that was set before you. Lord, please help us to live for you. Please help us to, to live as if we appreciate that, Lord. Please help us, Lord, to lay aside all that would hinder us from serving you. In Jesus' name, amen.